uh, this morning, I, I want to preach on the very first verse of the Bible. And it's appropriate that you sang a hymn uh, that was very much connected with that theme. I'll read of just a few verses from Genesis uh, chapter 1. And we read, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth, earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he the seas, called he seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. We'll end our reading there at the end of verse 13, and we will bow together briefly in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that thou wilt speak to us from thy holy word. Fill me now with thy spirit. Pour out thy spirit upon each one of us. May we say as Samuel was instructed, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. Answer prayer. Forgive us for all our sins. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Here we have God's first word to us. It's not the first word that he spoke to man because he spoke to Adam and gave him instructions, telling him he could eat from the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when God speaks to us, the first word we have from him is this first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And what we have here is what I might call a foundational statement. If this statement is not true, then we may just stop reading. Stop at that point. Because everything that follows to the end of the Bible depends absolutely on the truthfulness of this opening statement. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Some people have thrown doubt on the first 11 chapters of Genesis and have decided that they cannot be taken literally. Well, we'll go further back. We'll see if the first verse cannot be taken literally, then we've lost the Bible. Never mind those first 11 chapters. The Bible is entitled to no more respect than the writings of William Shakespeare or Charles Dickens. In fact, 
because the Bible claims to be inspired, the inspired word of God, its first words, if they are not literally true, we cannot respect what it subsequently has to say to us. In other words, we have here what I've described as a foundational statement. And everything that follows, right to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, depends on the absolute accuracy of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And the first thing I want to say is, here we have a statement of fact. No explanation is given. God has spoken, and he says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, only someone who was there at that time could make that statement, and God was there. God is from everlasting to everlasting. There never was a time, it's hard for our little minds to conceive of this, there never was a time when God did not exist. And one of the beautiful things about this, if you're a child of God, is this. Yea, God says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. If you're saved and a child of God, God has always loved you. Always. He knew about you in eternity past. He loved you in eternity past. He chose you in eternity past. He loves you now. And he will love you for all eternity that lies before us. What a tremendous encouragement that is for the child of God. No explanation is given here. It's taken as a fact. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And this statement must be received by faith. That is exactly, you know, what Paul tells us in Hebrews 11 and verse 3. It says, through faith. We understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things that do appear. Now, you might say there are some people who don't have faith. Maybe there's someone here and you don't have faith and you say, where can I obtain faith? Faith is the gift of God. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is a gift you can ask God for. I know that there's a complex process and we may stagger at that, but all you've got to do is ask. Ask God. It's a gift of God. God never refuses if we sincerely ask for that gift. If we say, Lord, I need that gift of faith. Will you give it to me? God will certainly answer and he will give us faith. And one thing that we'll understand in the beginning. God created the heavens, or the heaven and the earth. Now I say that faith in Genesis 1 verse 1 is both right and, I will add, it is perfectly reasonable. It is but right to believe God. It is also perfectly reasonable. Uh, One of our retired ministers, and I'm a a colleague of his, I studied with him uh, in our theological hall, as it was called at that time, One of our retired ministers has produced a little booklet and it sets out the statements of those who were uh, eminent in faith and in medicine, or sorry, in science and in medicine, uh, and uh, shows their simple faith in God. Uh, You have people uh, like uh, Sir James Simpson who discovered 
the use of chloroform. Very helpful when you go into a hospital if you're going to have an operation. And days gone by when people were having an operation, they were held down. Uh, and they might have been screaming in pain. Nowadays, you go in and uh, you're knocked out and you come round in the recovery ward. I had to go in to have my heart regularized. It's very simple things, electric shock treatment. The doctor said to me, pointed to the clock on the wall, and he said, in a little time, after you get this injection, not just the clock, hands will be going around, but the clock will be going round. I didn't even last that long. Bang, I was gone. I think as soon as I got the injection, and uh, the next thing, I was wheeled back uh, into another section of the ward, and I never noticed a thing that had taken place. Very thankful I was that I didn't notice. And uh, it's a great help. Sir James Simpson was a simple believer in God. Sir Michael Faraday, who made great discoveries, uh, both uh, in physics and in chemistry and in the use of electricity, Sir Michael Faraday was also, like Sir James Simpson, uh, a believer in Jesus Christ, a simple believer in the Son of God. Uh, And uh, Mr. Lynn has set that out in a little booklet I gave it out where I live and where Jane lives, just round the corner, as I said, from me. Uh, And it asks, who is the fool? Uh, The one who believes in creation or the one who believes in evolution? Because he not only sets out the statements of uh, those who believe the Bible, but he sets out the statements of those who didn't believe in the Bible. One was by the name of Professor George Wald. He was a professor in Harvard University. And he made this statement. One has only to contemplate the magnitude of the task to concede that the spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. What a statement. He's really saying that evolution, uh, something happening out of nothing without a, a, a first cause, He says, that's impossible. And then he added this very foolish statement. He said, yet here we are, as I believe, as a result of spontaneous generation. He says it's impossible, but I believe in it. Why? Why would he make such a statement? Well, he added that the only alternative was belief in some form of supernatural creation. So he'd rather believe in an impossibility than believe in divine creation. Another person that Mr. Linden quoted was Dr. Charles Sagan. And Dr. Sagan quoted the odds against evolution. Now, I can't remember whether it was 6,000 books of 300 pages or uh, 3,000 books of 600 pages. It adds up to the same thing. 18,000 pages are required just to write out the odds against evolution. This is a man who believed in it and he showed us the the impossibility, 18,000 pages, just to write out the odds against evolution. Well, who is the fool? The person who believes in a possibility, in a, a supernatural God, or the person who believes in an impossibility? I think I can assure you of the answer. Uh, that God is great, God is mighty, 
And God is wise. And I could have added another person to that list, a man, Professor Stuart Burgess. He's a man who's at present, he's a professor in Bristol University. He worked on the design of the cycle that was used by the British Olympic cycling team. And I have to tell you folk from America, the British Olympic cycling team uh, seemed to dominate in the Olympic Games, winning gold medals, silver medals, and bronze medals. Uh, They were the top team. Uh, Professor Burgess helped to design the cycle that is used. He also was involved in the space program. So he's a very clever, very able man, and he has complete faith in the Word of God, in six-day creation. And he, in his book, he mentions different items, a book on design. I'm trying to think of the name of the book. And his book has to do with the wisdom of God displayed. And he mentions, he mentions different things in the book. One of the things he mentions is what he calls the irreducible knee joint. Uh, And when he's speaking about the knee joint, he says it's impossible for it to have been formed at different times, the different segments. It had to come as a unit. And I know his argument is above my head, uh, but he said it had to come as a unit. Otherwise, we would not be able to walk. Uh, He describes also items that are not necessary for functioning uh, but are built into the design of different creatures. One is the beauty, say the beauty of the peacock. That's not necessary for the survival of the peacock. It's an added feature. He mentions the singing of birds and how uh, birds can sing to their mates and the scale of the birds beyond anything that our greatest singers can manage. How wonderful it is that we have these things. And he mentions the, the, the camel, the ship of the desert, and how it is designed. A long neck so that it can reach the vegetation. Rubbery lips so that it doesn't hurt its lips. If you and I were to bite into prickly vegetation, that would hurt our lips. It has, it has lips that are rubbery. Also, it can drink in over... Uh, over a hundred litres of water in under ten minutes. I discovered something in the last couple of days. I've been here before. I discovered your gallons are smaller than ours. There's 3.78 litres in your gallons. There's 4.54 point 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 uh, in ours. So the camel, the ship of the desert, it can drink in uh, approximately 27 or more gallons of your gallons Uh, over 22 gallons of our gallons of water in under 10 minutes. It also, when it's in the desert, it concentrates its urine so that it doesn't run short of fluid. I'm running short of it already uh, here, so I'm just going to take a mouthful of water or two. It concentrates its urine. It, It drinks in the water. Uh, it has long legs to keep it away from the hot uh, sands. Uh, at night time, uh, its body temperature cools down 
so that it doesn't start to shiver. And in the daytime, because of the heat, its body temperature increases so that it doesn't sweat. Uh, uh, it has fat in that hump uh, that will uh, carry nutrition uh, when uh, it is without vegetation for a time. It's amazingly made uh, as the ship of the desert. Uh, that's by design of God. And, and something else that's not mentioned by Professor Burgess, the golden plover. Golden plover, uh, it is bred in Alaska summer. And then the parent birds, they migrate away to the heat uh, of Hawaii uh, in the Alaskan winter. That is a journey of over 3,000 miles. Uh, and they have to arrive at a tiny speck in the Atlantic. I know you might say it's more than a tiny speck, but in comparison with the great Atlantic, Hawaii is just a tiny speck. And one of the problems that the golden plover has is this. It doesn't have enough body weight. It's a bit like fuel in an aeroplane, or airplane as it's called here. Uh, It doesn't have enough fuel in its body weight uh, to carry it all the way uh, from Alaska to Hawaii. So what does the golden plover do? The little birds, they fly together in a formation. And they take turns uh, at leading. And the result is they conserve their body weight and they can all arrive safely in Hawaii in that little tiny speck in the Atlantic that they have never uh, seen before. So who designed the golden plover? Who gave the instinct to the golden, golden plover? Almighty God did it. So how great is our God? So we can say, we see the wisdom of God and the power of God in creation. It is reasonable to believe in God. It is true. God in the beginning created the heaven and the earth. He created the creatures. He created man. And how wonderful is God? But then God's wisdom and power are displayed in our lives. Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 5 says, As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who makest all. How great is the wisdom of God. That child developing in the womb and and developing uh, with all its faculties uh, and uh, the bones, the nerves, the sinews and so on. Amazing. That is the wisdom of God. That is the power of God displayed. Man may know the processes uh, that uh, the little child in the womb goes through, but man cannot understand how that happens. That is entirely down to the wisdom of God and to the power of God. And God's creation is what we call ex nihilo. That's a Latin expression, and I'm sure you know what it means. It means from nothing. There was no pre-existing matter. Uh, Things were formed, it says. Things that are seen were not made of things which do appear. Can there be greater power than this? And that is the power of God. For our God is a great God. But then I take you to a greater display of God's wisdom and power. And that is in salvation. 
It is seen at Calvary in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 23 and 24. The Apostle Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There when you look at the cross and you see the one who is our creator, Dying in the place of sinners. You see the wisdom of God. You see the power of God. Who would have imagined. Who would have imagined. That the son of God. Would become man. Uh, We read in 1 Peter. uh, Chapter 1. That. uh, These things concerning the cross. Are those things that. The angels. Desire to look into. And that word desire. Uh, It's a very strong word. It it has the idea of stooping down in order to look into something. We use the expression, I don't know if you use it here, of craning one's neck. You're looking over and you're looking intently. You're trying to find out, what is this all about? What is happening here? Uh, And you're so anxious to find out. Well, the angels, in a sense... If that statement is correct about craning their neck, the angels are craning their neck. I know you're speaking of spiritual beings. They're craning their neck. They're stooping down. They're trying to find out. And perhaps before Christ came, they wondered, how, how, how did God save Abraham? How did God save Isaac? How did he save Jacob? How did he save David? With the sins that those people committed... How did he save them? The angels that left their first estate, they are reserved in chains in everlasting darkness unto the judgment of the great day. But how is it? How is it that Abraham saved? He was a sinner. He was an idolater in Ur of the Chaldees. How is it that Isaac saved? He was a sinner. Jacob, he was a twister. How was he saved? David fell into grievous sin. How was he saved? And multitudes of others, men and women and young people of the Old Testament, saved. How can this be? The angels desired to look into it. They could never, I suppose, have imagined the Son of God would become man, come via the virgin birth at Bethlehem, live a spotless life, display his credentials by performing miracles, including raising the dead. And then, can it be, wonder of wonders, God's dear Son, the creator of the angels, dies an accursed death on Calvary's cross. They spit upon him. Uh, They whip him. They scourge him. They plait a crown of thorns and place it upon his brow. His blood is pouring forth. And Isaac Watts said, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Where the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, Demands my soul, my life, my all. The wisdom of God. The power of God is seen at Calvary. Now to create, God just had to speak. But to save the souls of men, the Son of God had to become flesh and dwell among us. And that was the hardest thing God ever had to do. You find Christ in Gethsemane. Crying to his father, if it be possible, let this cup pass 
from me. In John chapter 12, uh, Christ uh, feels the weight of what he is about uh, to do, going to the cross. And he says, now is my soul troubled. He's deeply disturbed. The horror, a horror comes down upon him. And he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And then he resolutely adds, nevertheless, for this cause came I unto this hour. In Gethsemane, he was so weakened, his sweat fell to the ground as great drops or great clots of blood. And an angel came from heaven to strengthen him. I believe he must have strengthened him with words. And we must ask the question, how, how, O Son of God, how didst thou go through with such a tremendous, a tremendous work, a work way beyond an angel, way beyond the entire angelic host, way beyond all mankind together to perform? How did Christ do it? It, it pushed him. It pushed him to the very limit in order to deal with the problem of our sin. And I say this to you. Not one of us who is saved should take our salvation lightly. It took the infinite wisdom and power of God to devise and execute the plan of salvation. And as Paul puts it in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? But, but I want to add a second point. And I want to say because God is the great creator, we are utterly dependent on him. And he has the right to tell us how we should conduct our lives. We see our dependency. In Daniel chapter 5, Daniel says to Belshazzar, uh, that he has rebelled against God, that the writing on the wall was because of his wickedness and his rebellion. And he says to him, The God in whose hand thy breath is, hast thou not glorified. Your breath is in God's hands. We won't be able to take one breath without God's wisdom, without God's will, without God's power. In Acts 17, verse 28, we have a very similar statement. Paul says to all those people on Mars Hill, in him we live and move and have our being. It's through God that we are alive today. And now that gives God the right to tell us how to behave. There's people, they think, we can do as we like. We can behave as we please. No, please, no, we cannot. We cannot. Because we are dependent on God, because God is our creator, and because God is all wise, God has the right to tell us how we live our lives. We have ten commandments, very simply set out in Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and so on, right down to the last one. Thou shalt not covet. That is all set before us in Exodus chapter 20, down to verse 17. And God has the right to tell us about marriage. Who should marry whom? Uh, male, female. Not male, male. Not female, female. 
female. He has the right to tell us whether abortion is right or wrong. And clearly, it is wrong for he says, thou shalt not kill. It's not a thing that is in the womb of the mother. It is a human being. And the clear proof is, if that pregnancy goes to full term, it will be a human being that is born. It will not be an animal. It will not be some other creature. It will be a human being. You kill that child in the womb, you're killing a human being. So uh, those who, uh, who say it's a mother's right to, uh, to dispense with what's in her womb uh, and uh, she's not free, she's in bondage if uh, she listens to the pro-abortion lobby. She's in bondage to sin. She's in bondage to false advice. God has the right to tell us. And uh, God has the right to say uh, that transgenderism is wrong. And God has the right to tell us how we should behave on his day. Now, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And what God speaks, remember this. What God speaks is spoken in love. Well, we get this false idea of God that he's, he's out there as a killjoy. He, he spoils our pleasures. So uh, we want to kick against that. And we want to do our own thing, behave on the Sabbath as we behave on the other days of the week. And people will go out and do their shopping. They'll cut their lawns. They'll wash their car. They'll go to the seaside. God says, Remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's for our good. You know, in the revolution in France, uh, they, uh, they, they dropped the idea of a seven-day week uh, and they, they were going to go for a ten-day week. But it didn't work. It didn't work. Uh, and uh, man, man needs to have his day of rest. Uh, and not only is, is God speaking out of love and for our good when he gives us these commands... But that is how God feels about these things. Uh, uh, we have a new sovereign uh, in the United Kingdom. Our, our beloved queen, after 70 and a half years uh, on the throne, passed uh, very quickly into eternity. And uh, when she signed into law uh, many acts that were passed in our parliament, she didn't necessarily agree with all of the laws. Some of them, no doubt, she was happy with. But others of those laws were not how she felt. She would have said, I don't agree with that. But it's been passed by Parliament. And she was really a figurehead rather than an executive monarch. So she signed them all into law as dictated by the Parliament, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. But when, when God passes laws, they reflect his nature. That's how God feels. When God says, thou shalt not covet, God hates covetousness. When God says to us, thou shalt not kill, and he's speaking there of murder, God hates murder, the taking of innocent life. When God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, he hates adultery. That's why he judged David uh, so harshly. Uh, and David deserved to be judged harshly. In fact, there was mercy mingled with the harshness. But we, we could go through the commandments. Uh, we can see when God pronounces a law, that's how he feels. Uh, that's uh, what is wrong. 
and God is wiser than we are. So it is therefore right to seek God as to what he would have us to do and then not only know what he would have us to do, but to do it. Be obedient. You're a child of God if you're saved. Your duty is to behave accordingly. I I remember uh, being with uh, a family, a very godly family. Uh, I've been to a prayer meeting. It was in a brethren assembly. Uh, And the man that uh, I went to with other friends uh, afterwards for a cup of tea, uh, he said, I, as a Christian, can do anything except go to hell. But he said, God forbid that I should. His practice was better than his creed. And there are people who think when you're saved, because you have everlasting life, because a true child of God can never perish, that true child of God can do anything he or she pleases. Not so. If God is our Father and we we love Christ, we'll want to serve him. We'll want to obey him. And if we don't obey him, we will expect a fatherly chastening. We'll expect God to chasten us and to deal with us. So uh, when we're saved, because God is our creator, he has the absolute right to tell us how to behave. And when he commands to us repentance and tells us to turn from our sins and that only Christ can save us, he's giving us absolutely perfect information. Christ said to some Jews who came to him, except ye repent. They thought there were others who had suffered judgment because they were terrible sinners. He said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. And then if we go back a chapter, Acts 16, where the Philippian jailer says to the apostle Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. You come to the Savior, you turn from your sin, you call upon his name, and then you taste and see that the Lord is good. And I want to make one more point, and I know my time has run away, but I want to make this point, that because God is our creator, we will one day have to answer to him. I may say that that is the logical outcome of God being our creator. That's the outcome of his being our creator. One day, one day we shall answer before him. Uh, He has appointed a day in Acts 17, we read, in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. We have to answer for the short time, and it is a very short time, that we spend here in this world. And uh, you can only answer if you have Christ as your saviour. You can only answer with confidence if you've sought to follow him, to obey him, to do his will. Romans 14 and verse 12 says, So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. We read in Revelation 20 and verses 11 to 15 of the great white throne judgment. And it says, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What a solemn, what a solemn thought. I don't think anybody 
can read through those last five verses in Revelation 20 without being stirred to the depth of his or her being. We shall answer one day to God. And in the light of these great truths, and especially the opening statement of the Bible, in the beginning, we could even stop at the next word and pause there. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. But in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, displaying his wisdom, displaying his power, giving him the absolute right to tell us how we should live our lives in this world. And then also showing us that one day we will stand before him, we will answer to him. In the light of all this, how do we stand? Where do we stand today? I say, make sure of your soul's eternal well-being by repenting of your sin. And we constantly need to repent. It's not just a one-off exercise. And then, as I said, live as you please. Constantly repenting, keeping short accounts, keeping close when you're saved to the Savior, listening for his voice, rejoicing in his presence, and walking, walking humbly before your God with Christ ever before you. And if you know not Christ, Psalm 34 and verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see. That the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that thou wilt apply thy truth to all of our hearts. We say again, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. Speak to me. Speak to each one of us. Lord, help us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.